Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. In a moment, we are going to be reading from the Bible. Sam's going to come up and bring us a couple of readings uh, from Scripture. Uh, We are starting a new series tonight, uh, and uh, we're in the new series until we get to Christmas. Do you believe Christmas is only 64 sleeps away, I think? What is going on? Um, We're starting a series in the book of Acts, uh, the Acts of the Apostles. Um, Acts is probably familiar to some of us, maybe many of us, and in some ways that could be a bit of a danger, I reckon. Um, Someone helpfully put to me the other day that uh, Christians can, we can often sort of, if you've been a Christian for a long time, you can sort of lose that that zing, that excitement about the the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, Good news, Acts is all about excitement, a bit of zing. It's great, it's a great story. He compared it, this guy I was talking to, to like one of those antique, beautiful paintings that often hang in those gentlemen's clubs where old guys sit around, you know, smoking cigars and drinking brandy. Um, over time, the, you know, the painting was beautiful, but the smoke and that over time has just kind of dulled it a little bit. It's not quite as beautiful. Its glory is dulled and diminished over time. It's still that, that sharpness. The image is still beautiful, but maybe the beauty that once stirred us is kind of covered over. Sometimes some of us get it that way about the good news of Jesus. And Acts is, is just a beautiful antinote. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the doctor, as he's affectionately called, says that Acts is a tonic for the soul. A tonic for the soul. Because the book of Acts, is, it's kind of the sequel to Luke's gospel. Luke writes the book of Acts. Some have called it the Acts of the Apostles. If you open your Bible, it'll say the Acts of the Apostles because really it records the, the action of God's people following the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, seeing that message go out into the world. Um, some, helpfully perhaps, have called it the Acts of the Holy Spirit because when you open up the book of Acts, you just see the powerful Holy Spirit at work in the world. But perhaps Luke himself, I reckon the author of this book, probably saw it more about the acts of Jesus, the ongoing acts of the risen Jesus in the world. Because reality is, guys, he didn't stop. He kept on going. He is unstoppable. That's why the series is called Unstoppable, How God Uses the Church to Change the World. This book is all about excitement because it's a book about the world being overturned starting with people's individual lives, changed by the news of Jesus, and then whole villages, cities, cultures, getting completely turned upside down by the work of Jesus. Getting started in this book over the next weeks as we roll into Christmas, and we're looking at it, I'm thinking we're looking at it with real hope for real change in each of our lives, perhaps even in this city. Real change in a culture where individualism reigns. Acts calls us to be a community of real selflessness and love. In a culture where truth gets relativized, Acts says, no, 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 no. The lordship of Jesus is powerful. In a culture where that seeks to quieten the voice of the church, Acts reminds us that nothing can stop the power of the good news. In a culture where excellence is seen as the key to success, we're reminded in Acts that dependence on God is the key to success. In a culture that says comfort, pursue comfort at all costs, Acts says, no, 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 suffering and costly discipleship is where the real rewards lie. We're looking at the book of Acts, and I trust and hope and pray 
that we'll be excited by the way that it transforms lives and transforms this world by the message of Jesus being proclaimed through the church, through us. So I'm going to pray. I want you to join with me as we pray. And then Sam's going to come and read Psalm 16 and the first bit of Acts. Let's pray together. Father, we pray tonight, and the word that's been coming to me this week is the word confidence. Father, we pray that tonight, as we read your word and and as I, in your power, seek to explain it, Father, I pray that you'd give us confidence. Father, for those of us here tonight who are self-confident, Father, please change us and give us Christ-confidence. For those of us here tonight who are struggling, who are doubting Jesus, I pray that, Father, you would, by your Spirit, give them Christ's confidence. Father, those of us here tonight who are exploring Jesus, not yet trusting Jesus, Father, I pray that you would reveal yourself by your Spirit to them tonight and give them confidence in Jesus. So, Father, we pray now as we hear your word read and explained, Father, we would see Jesus, we would hear Jesus, we would love Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks, man. We read from Psalm 16. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, apart from you I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And we read from Acts chapter 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my Father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. 
They were looking intently up into the sky as he was gone. And when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Thanks, Sam. That's great. Uh, kind of from the, where I come from, I love it if people have the Bible open in front of them. Uh, so I'd love it if you have Acts chapter 1 and those words that Sam just read. In, you know, so you can check what I'm saying and you can follow along. That'd be great. I want you to picture, as we start this uh, part of God's Word, I want you to picture your life, just for a moment, as a circle. Okay? Not your life like as a circle, but like your life and all that's in your life within a circle. Okay? So you got that in your mind? Picturing a circle? You know, in that circle, what are all the things that make up your life? You know, I'm, I'm thinking in your circle, you've got your job, your, you know, some of your possessions, your house, your unit, your educational background, your, you know, where you've come from, your passions, your desires, all those sorts of things. All of those, you're picturing all those in your circle. Okay, now, in that circle, in the, in the centre of that circle is a seat. It's kind of like, imagine like a CEO seat, you know, like one of those big leather ones, ergonomically designed, all that sort of stuff. No, no, like a throne. In the centre of your circle is a throne. And with all those things everywhere in your circle, I want you to imagine who's, who's on that throne? What is on that throne in the circle of your life? Is the Lord Jesus at the centre of your circle on that throne? Obviously, Jesus will be somewhere in that circle, I'm thinking. That's why you're kind of here tonight at City Light North Adelaide. But is Jesus there in the middle? I ask that question because it's a question I've been asking myself as I've been preparing on the book of Acts, thinking about it myself, because the opening chapters of Acts really forces us to ask that question and answer that question. Is Jesus Lord of your life? Luke wants us to be clear on the one critical detail, that one critical detail that frames the whole of the book. Because the the book of Acts really will make no sense to us, I reckon, if we will get no deep, lasting, transformative kind of impact and value out of it unless we can answer that question clearly. One detail that our lives have to be able to testify to, just like these first followers we meet in the book of Acts, that Jesus is Lord. Because what Luke really wants to do right at the beginning is create out of ordinary people bold, confident witnesses to go into the world. And to do that, he takes the people, he takes us back to basics. We really get back to basics in the opening verses of the book of Acts. You know, one of the biggest issues that the disciples had to get their heads around as they kind of are sitting there with the risen Jesus is they had to move from the idea, there's sort of some slides popping up, I think, move from the idea that, that Jesus, Israel's king and Messiah, wasn't just going to be king of Israel, but actually was going to be king of the world. Not just king over that little patch of earth in the world, but king over the whole world. That's an idea, right, that had to dawn on these apostles, these disciples, kind of slowly. You know what, as we read the book of Acts, it takes these kind of rabble bunch of disciples, the entire 28 chapters, really, to get their head around that idea that the kingdom of God is not just, you know, Israel, but the whole world. Isn't that kind of encouraging? I'm a slow learner, you know. 28 chapters, heaps of history to work out. That's what's really going on. A bit like the prophet uh, Jonah in the Old Testament, 
And these remaining disciples and apostles gathered there with their friends at the beginning, like Jonah, they think the nation of Israel is where all the action is, where it will always be, which is an idea they'll have to grow out of as God kind of expands their vision. It's wonderful. But let's start um, back at step number one, back to the basics. I really love the basics. Um, we meet the apostles uh, at the beginning of Acts during this 40-day kind of period where they're with Jesus after he's resurrected from the dead and that Jesus has been teaching them day after day after day about what they need to know. You'll see some stuff that they've been taught coming out in sort of the next chapter, really, where Peter stands up and gives the first sermon recorded in the New Testament. I think he kind of picks up some of the things that Jesus has most likely been teaching them. And I'm convinced, right, that it all starts back in the Old Testament, where God had promised Israel, God's original people, a king who would rule forever. A resurrected, eternal king who secures the future. That's why Sam kind of read Psalm 16, or I asked Sam to read Psalm 16. Um, he didn't just spontaneously go, oh, Acts 1, Psalm 16. Like, Because the issue up until this point in sort of history of God's people, history of the world, that the world had been searching for a a resurrected eternal king who secures the future for, for all the time. The trouble is they hadn't found one. It's a problem for kings, isn't it? Have a look at the next slide. Poor old Prince Charles. Maybe it's not working. Yeah, there he is. Poor old Prince Charles. Every time I see Charles or Chuck on TV, um, I think, wow, he's just looking a little bit older. You know, it's a race against the clock for Chuck. You know, will he ever get a go at being king? Or will he just kind of go down the long line of all the other kings who'd kind of got close but kind of never really did? What happened to all those would be kings of old? They were buried, they died. In Psalm 16, in the Old Testament, King David, the best king, arguably, that Israel had ever had, although far from perfect, he said these words, Psalm 16, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also, also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. Now, they're kind of strange words, right? King David wrote these words. I mean, the question you've got to ask is, did David think he was going to live forever? Or or was he planning one day to be cryogenically frozen, packed away somewhere, and then thawed out to kind of rule and reign into all eternity? If he thought either of those things, he was sadly deluded, yeah? David died. David was buried. Yet David's words lived on and formed the hope of a God-anointed king of Israel who would one day not die, not see decay, but who would rule forever. The Holy One of God. Which you will see is the kind of stuff that Jesus is reminding his people about in this 40-day theological back-to-basics intensive after his resurrection from the dead. And take a look at the syllabus for this intensive. Because for a bunch of people who are expecting and waiting for a non-perishable Messiah as the eternal king of Israel, it's very simple. It's just the basics. So verse 3, it's on the screen, chapter 1, verse 3. After his suffering, after Jesus' suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over, uh, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Do you see the links beginning to form? resurrected, imperishable Jesus and the kingdom of God. 
Because it's essential that these first messengers are absolutely certain, absolutely sure, totally confident that they have indeed gotten to know the imperishable eternal king of the world. That they're absolutely sure they haven't just seen a ghost or hallucinating or been involved in some kind of mass delusion or some stunt doubles turned up that looks a heck of a lot like Jesus. But no, that he was once dead and now he is alive. Many convincing proofs over 40 days that the impossible has been made possible by the power of the Spirit. It's not just some kind of positive thinking, pop psychology, warm, fuzzy Easter message, you know, when all is bad, just look on the bright side of life, don't worry, be happy, blah, 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 crap, 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 right? Jesus is risen from the dead and so we sing, he is the promised eternal King. You you and I need to know this if we're going to be confident witnesses to go into the world. It's actually interesting if you just glance forward a little bit into chapter 1, verse 21. The apostles are are looking for a a substitute, someone to step into the breach because Judas, who betrayed uh, Jesus, they're down to 11, they need one more. Interesting what they look for in qualifications for the job. Someone who's seen Jesus' baptism and seen his death, but most notably, it's all about his resurrection. Chapter 1, 21 to 22. Therefore, it's necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living amongst us, beginning from John's baptism back in the Jordan to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Because you see, the resurrection is the game changer. It's proof positive that Jesus is the Holy One of God. The King that Israel has been longing for. The King the world has been desperately in need of since the fall. When I was at Bible college, um, I remember some things from Bible college, but not everything. One of the cool things that I found out about Bible college, you know Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God creates the world, it's beautiful, it's very good, makes human beings and we're in relationship with him and then we reject God, that's sin. And then there's the chaos of the, the, the fall, right? You know, everything's just getting smashed to pieces. Most notably, our relationship with God is cut off. And, you know, and right in the midst of all the darkness and the chaos, God makes this fantastic promise. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of judgment, God promises to send one born of a woman to crush the head of the serpent, to crush and deal with evil. And the way I understand the Old Testament, right, if you kind of struggle with the Old Testament, basically the Old Testament is just looking for that guy, looking for the one to crush the head of evil. David looks good, bam, doesn't do it. Jesus is the one. It's not just Israel's hope, it's the world's hope. It's your, it's the hope that we need. And you can see this, it's very much on their minds with the next words of Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, where Jesus says, Wait here in Jerusalem for the coming of the promised Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit promised by God to empower the witness of God's people. Now, again, we need to sort of set the scene for this part of the syllabus uh, to make sense and to be well-prepared witnesses, confident witnesses. 
Because in the disciples' minds, right, and fair enough too, there's another ringing promise of God from the Old Testament prophecies that, prophets, prophets, that when the Messiah comes, when God's King comes, two things are going to happen. You need to know this to make sense, right? It's on the screen. Two things. So this is the prophet Ezekiel, almost. There he is. Um, promise, prophet, prophet Ezekiel writing hundreds of years before this. He's, he's, he's looking out and seeing how God's people have been smashed by all the superpowers around, and he sees how God's people have been exiled all over the known world at the time. And then Ezekiel records these great promises of God, things that God's people have been hanging out for. He says to them, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will promise one, put my spirit in you, and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then promise two, then you will live in the land that I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. At last, we come and Jesus comes and the promises of God have been fulfilled. You know, you come to Acts and you see at last people will do from the heart what God desires them to do. Remove this heart of stone which is all about self and move it to do what God loves. Rather than simply doing stuff because God tells us to do it or writes it on a stone, the law of God will be etched on our hearts. Every time I come across this stuff, I think of myself sitting on a city rail train when I was living in Sydney and I was sitting on a train and there was a sign, you know when you sit down and there's some, what, in, in Sydney trains, there's all these signs about what you're not allowed to do. You know, don't put your feet on the seats, don't smoke, don't drink alcohol, don't talk to the person next to you, all that sort of stuff. Now, you know, and uh, I saw someone put a sign up saying, and the sign, like you know, it said, do not spit on the train. I even thought about spitting on the train. But then I'm, I feel the saliva kind of growing in my mouth and... I'm like, didn't really want to spit, but now I'm feeling like I want to spit. And so I did. <laughs> I mean, I told you before, you're looking at a very imperfect person. Like, there's an example, right? It's, it's kind of like this, but God, you know, rather than sort of writing it on the wall, he writes it on our hearts. So we want to do what God wants us to do. We can be in relationship with him. But, you know, this is the stuff that's forming the background of this passage. And it seems like that the disciples, when they're meeting with Jesus, aren't so much interested in the Holy Spirit bit. They're more interested in the land bit. That's what they kind of focus on. So if you jump over the next slide, I think it's Acts. Yeah, here we go. This is Jesus kind of picking up on those in the Ezekiel background. While staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Ezekiel chapter 36, promise one, fulfilled. So when they had come together, they asked him. This is where they're kind of more interested. Like, not the Holy Spirit stuff, right? Just tell us about the land. They asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom of Israel? I mean, they're kind of going, is Israel going to be the center of the action? Like we've always wanted... You know, the, the Romans are here, they booted us out, but are we back? Is, are you going to lead a charge? The issue is they didn't realise that Jesus has got plans and purposes far, far bigger than just restoring a little patch of land in the Middle East. We're not talking about restoring a little patch of land or calling a few exiles home from scattered around the places. This is the start of a whole new worldwide kingdom. 
See how Jesus answers their question? Chapter 1, verse 7. Jesus said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father is set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth. Not from everywhere back to Jerusalem, but from Jerusalem to everywhere. To places like, next slide, like Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia and Tokyo in Japan, like Goma in the Congo and Gove in the Northern Territory, like Kubapiti just up the road and Calgary in Canada. Jesus says to this ordinary bunch of men and women before him in little old Jerusalem, start here. And you'll be empowered by the promised Holy Spirit, that same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, to go out as my witnesses from here in Jerusalem to Judea, the next province, then to Samaria, the next province, and then to the ends of the earth. From Jerusalem out to everywhere. Even sleepy old Adelaide, right? Jesus' claim is bigger than they realise. And they might have known if they'd been reading another bit of the Old Testament, which is the next part of the syllabus, full of action. Uh, Jesus kind of highlights a kind of thing we don't think about very often, but a really essential part of our faith in Jesus, our Christian faith. The next part of the syllabus is introducing God's people to an ascended nation-ruling king to whom every single person on earth must submit. He alludes to this, a, a, a section of the Bible in Daniel chapter 7. It's an incredible event that we've come to call the, what is it? Anyone know? The ascension. The ascension of Jesus. And since I think the ascension is kind of weird. If you go, wow, I haven't heard much about the ascension. I think it's a kind of weird event, right? And because it's a bit weird, we don't often think about stuff that's kind of a bit abstract and stuff, but it's so important. The point of the next bit is that Jesus is going to play out right before their very eyes. He's going to play out, he's going to enact, he's going to do literally and concretely and historically the vision that Daniel received in a vision hundreds of years before and he's going to do it in a spectacular way. There's a picture here of the Mount of Olives. So this is where they're all standing, right? That's a real place. They're all standing on the Mount of Olives on the edge of Jerusalem Jesus is just say, you're going to go out into the ends of the earth with the good news of Jesus. And Luke, without wasting words, chapter 1, verse 9, when he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And then some angels kind of came around. How, how would you feel, right? Just put yourself in that place. How would you feel if you were watching that? As, as Jesus' feet are kind of lifted off the grassy knoll of the Mount of Olives. I think it'd be terrifying, personally. Luke doesn't tell us if there was a whooshing noise, if there were like afterburners or thunder and lightning. He doesn't do that. Just taken up by a cloud. They saw him go into the clouds. This is Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel's vision, Daniel is standing in the throne room of God. He's like in heaven, like with God, receiving this vision. And he sees this figure approaching him from earth, riding on the clouds. What Daniel is watching is the coronation of the most important figure 
in all of history, in all of the universe. Rather than walk down a nice red carpet in the UK that Chuck, I guess, hopes one day he'll get to do and have a crown on his head, Daniel says, one like a son of man, human like you and me, comes on the clouds to the ancient of days. Check it out. And look and look at what his title is. Look at what he had and who he is crowned to be. And look at the extent of his rule, the length of his reign. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Unstoppable. The king of all nations. People from every language worshipping and honouring him and it's a kingdom that's never going to end. It is an unstoppable kingdom. Now I want to put it to you, right? I want to put it to you that every single time Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man, which is pretty much every single time he ever opens his mouth, as recorded in Luke's Gospel and all the other Gospels, that he's looking at that moment. He's looking ahead to that moment. After he's died for the sins of the world, after he's risen triumphantly, crushing death once and for all, he then takes his place at the right hand of God to rule and reign and to gather people from all nations to himself. And now as those rabbity, rabbit, you know, rabid old disciples stand there, as they grow smaller and smaller on the hillside, Jesus is on his way. His journey has begun to rule and to reign as the king of all nations at the right hand of God. And these ordinary men and women are just standing there watching this play out before them. This little bunch standing on the hill, left behind to announce to witness to, empowered by the Spirit, the good news of Jesus. It's, it's, I, what a moment, right? How do you reckon they're going to go at doing the job, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth? I reckon it's a really scary job. I reckon it's scary enough as I and Adele think about coming to reach just the little patch of North Adelaide this little franchise of God's kind of kingdom. The the disciples, the original disciples' franchise boundary was the ends of the earth. Announcing a king, proclaiming a ruler, calling on people to turn from their sin, repent and receive forgiveness and submit to the beautiful rule and reign of King Jesus, to join his family, to be taught his word and to care for each other in radical ways. Telling, next picture if we can, telling... The Roman world, a great personal cost that no matter if Tiberius is Caesar in Rome, that Jesus really is king. No matter if Claudius comes to the throne, that Jesus is Lord. That no matter if Nero comes to the throne in 54 AD and persecutes the heck out of the church and kills thousands of Christians, that Jesus is king. And incredibly, that that message right, spread as ordinary men and women led by the apostles, empowered by the Spirit, bore witness to the resurrected King Jesus. And guess what? It's still happening today. Christians are still doing it today at great cost in many parts of the world. Amen? Next slide. This and others like it appeared after one particular president whose name won't be mentioned 
came to power. Um, I think I noticed I sort of started on Facebook and Twitter um, after the election. No matter who's president, Jesus is king. Sorry, not having a crack at US people, by the way, Tyler. Um, no matter who's president. I know, I'm pretty slow, right? I'm not the quickest, sharpest tool in the shed, but um, I think 500,000 people had already seen this before me. You know, I'm just a really uninteresting person. But um, no matter who's president, Jesus is king. But I want to ask you this tonight. What do you think about that? You know, when Luke first wrote these words, back in the first century in chapter 1, they were very, very bold words. It surely must have seemed so very unlikely that things would work out the way they have. I mean, who would have thought, humanly speaking, that it would work out? If you were to ask Peter, James and John back there on the first day of Pentecost how many believers in Jesus were hanging around in Jerusalem, you know how many there were? About 120. If you go to Dr. Google these days, he'll tell you that there's about 2.2 billion Christians. I read an article some time ago by Greg Clark, who's the, the director of the Bible Society in Australia. He went on a trip to China. The number one best-selling book in China is the Bible. Yeah, sure. Like when you think about those numbers and you think about 2.1, 2.2 billion people, maybe it's not all authentic, real Christianity. A fair bit of it might just be playing church, going through the rituals, you know, rituals that really don't change anything about us, don't change the heart, don't lead us to, to love people, that don't stop our greed and idolatry and sin. So at the end of the day, right, it starts at the heart. So let me ask you again, how about you? There's a phrase that Christians use. It's kind of Christianese, I reckon. We hear it all the time. We probably use it all the time. It's this phrase, Jesus is Lord. We say it all the time. I'm including myself there, but do we really mean it? We mouth it easy. We proclaim it powerfully in song. But is he really Lord? Is Jesus really on that throne in the centre of your circle? Lord of your big decisions, not just over the small ones that really don't matter very much? Lord of your bank balance, or is he just Lord of the loose change in your pocket, your purse? Lord of your lifestyle, or just your hobbies? Lord when it's costly, Lord only when it's convenient. The great John Stott reflected on this by saying, is Christ the Lord or not? And if he is Lord, is he Lord of all? The Lordship of Jesus must be allowed to extend over every part of those who confess Jesus as Lord. It has to touch everything. He says, Jesus is enthroned in the world. Is he crowned in your heart? End quote. You know, it's entirely possible. I mean, I've only been here for like five weeks, right? So take this with that, right? But I think it's the same everywhere. It's entirely possible to be regular here at City Light Church, North Adelaide, or Glenelg, or Anchor Church. It's even possible, entirely possible, to be a DG leader, an elder of the church, an elder in training in the church. It's even possible to be a paid elder and not have Jesus on the throne of your life. I mean, he's in your life, but is he on the throne of your life? Because there's one thing that we're going to encounter in the book of Acts that's crystal clear. It's that when the apostles go from this point and talk about the resurrection and that Jesus is Lord, they really, really, really mean it. They went flat out. They did it for all they're worth. 
When they say Jesus is Lord, they really meant it and they live it and it changes their lives and it changes the lives of those around them. They lived, they made their decisions, they shared in a way that proclaimed clearly, Jesus is my Lord. He's at the centre of my circle. And so they committed themselves to reaching those around them, declaring the magnificent acts of God. As we'll see next week, they hung off every word of the teaching of the apostles, wanting to learn more and more and more about Jesus. They committed themselves to caring for one another with the ripple effect that had actually changed the world. As Christians started caring for orphans and widows and the sick, caring practically, caring deeply for those who couldn't care for themselves. And the world was transformed in Jesus' name, by the church, powered by the Spirit. You know, in this fresh new movement, it was pretty messy, right? And sometimes they got things marvellously wrong. But they learned what it meant in the name of Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, to proclaim and declare the magnificent acts of the resurrected Jesus. And it was never dull, it was never routine, it was exciting, authentic, scary and thrilling a movement that actually changed the world. Something that they were keen to be part of, all in. We're going to see that in the coming weeks. Yeah, it's a big task, isn't it? Living for Jesus, proclaiming Jesus to the ends of the earth. But you know what, brothers and sisters, this is the thing that I've loved learning this week. We have everything we need to do it. Everything we need to do it. He's given us a massive responsibility to make his rule known. It's a responsibility we have as individuals. It's a responsibility we have as a community. Because making disciples isn't something that we can just kind of, you know, budget for, outsource, and then everyone else just kind of sits back and relaxes. Together we engage in testifying to Christ. That's why I'm really encouraged. I've learned about your five for five in 365. Um, as you seek to identify five people who you want to reach with the good news, call them to trust in Jesus. Spoke to a guy this week who, one of the five guys that he's reaching is in his DG, and so he shares about him. I reckon he was like pressuring him to become a Christian. No, no, just wanted to tick that one off. No, it was really cool. But you know, it's a great responsibility. It's a privilege, isn't it, to think that we can help five people find the forgiveness of sins that they so desperately need. Five people's eternity connected to your actions. It's a massive responsibility. But it's a responsibility, brothers and sisters, we can take on with confidence because we have the Spirit's power. It's really Jesus, by his Spirit, working in and through us. We're coming towards the end, but I want to introduce you to one of my good mates. He's on the screen, Martin Luther. Um, Know him really well. We've had lots of time. No, Martin Luther was a guy that... um, lived about 500 years ago, um, and uh, he was a big deal about 500 years ago. He overturned the world. He was, humanly speaking, the leader of the Reformation as he kind of reclaimed the gospel and, and challenged all the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church and its hierarchy, and he actually made a lasting impact on Western civilization. He loved Jesus. He hadn't always loved Jesus, but he loved Jesus. And you know what? It turns out that he didn't take any credit for it himself. He gave all the credit to God and his word. Uh, Hear what he said. This is really cool. I opposed indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with Philip and Armstorff, 
the words so greatly weaken the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did everything. He didn't do anything. As a pastor, he took naps and drank beer with his buddies. This is how I spend my weeks. No, I don't actually, just kidding. Um, God's word, freshly available, preached openly. That did it all. He knew where the power was. And maybe that's what you and I need to hear tonight. I know I do. You know, I feel like I'm forever wrestling with my diary, right? You know, to carve out time to reach people who don't yet know Jesus with the good news of Jesus. Part of my job as a pastor is that I spend probably more time than most with believers. And so I want to carve out time in my diary to to actually witness and testify to the resurrection of Jesus with my family, with my friends, with others I haven't even yet met. Acts is really helpful at challenging me in this, but I trust it's the same for you, that there are challenges in your own life. Maybe for you tonight the challenge is different. Perhaps it's, you know, tonight you go, wow, I I need to know more about the Bible. And maybe my lack of Bible knowledge means I need to do some serious study to carry my responsibility well as I take the gospel out. Maybe that's your challenge. Maybe tonight you have, like most of us, right, a fear of displeasing people. You, you, you know, you, you need to be challenged to share what's really good for these people. Not keeping a polite friendship, but sharing the true gospel with people so they might have the opportunity to repent and come back to God through faith in Jesus. You know, we've got a lot more witnessing to do right on our doorstep. City Light, North Adelaide, I met with some of the staff this afternoon. I don't think there's a vision there amongst the City Light kind of team to have a bunch of people sitting in church feeling really comfy on a Sunday night and then we just go and do nothing. The church, we want to be a church that multiplies, where we all play our part, keeping our part of the mission as we seek to take Jesus to the ends of the earth. Because Jesus is alive. Jesus is on the throne He is Lord of the mission. He is unstoppable and he is coming back. Because you know what? The the next big event in world history isn't whether or not Simon and Adele Jackson end up as lead pastor at North Adelaide. The next great event in world history is when Jesus comes back. When the trumpets sound. And just as he was raised and ascended to the right hand of God, so on the clouds he will return and gather all those who love him to be with him and enjoy him forever. That's the next event. And as God's people in this place, in this time, we have a, we have a job to do. I'm going to finish. I promise I'll finish with this. A quote that I think summarises, I hope summarises, the circle of your, of my life. Quote, true faith is not a mere mental assent to certain theological propositions, but a living, burning, active principle which works by love, purifies the heart, overcomes the world, and brings forth much fruit of holiness and good works. Let us, brothers and sisters, live as if a dying, risen, interceding, and coming Christ We're continually before our eyes. Will you join me and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We praise you, Father, that you've given us your spirit. Your spirit is with us. It is powerful. It's powerful to raise Jesus from the dead. 
And Father, we thank you that your word gives us confidence to go out into the world with the good news of Jesus. Father, as I prayed at the beginning, Father, please give us that real sense of confidence that Jesus is the Holy One of God, that Jesus is alive and well and gathering people, even here in Adelaide, to himself through the humble initiative and work of your people. So, Father, make us more like Jesus. Give us your heart for mission. Father, help us to love you, and the overflow of that is to love our neighbour. Father, we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.